Thanks, Tony. So good morning. Uh, as Tony said, my name is Jonathan. I introduced myself earlier. I <clears throat> serve as a pastor here uh, at Redeemer. We're in the middle of a series on the book of Ephesians. We're continuing on. We've reached chapter 5. Uh, and so you can follow along either on the insert in your worship folder, if you're tuning in online, uh, wherever you're tuning in online. Glad that you're tuning in. Uh, the scripture will be on the screen or should be. But you can follow along on the insert or in the Pew Bible or a Bible that you have brought from home. I'm going to be reading from verse 1 to verse 20. So I realize this is a long passage. Uh, it's a hard passage. So I'll just forewarn you. Uh, there's, there's, some, there's some tough things here. Uh, we're not going to get through all of it, but a lot of it uh, applies just in and of itself. There, there's, there's not a lot of practical application other than read the text. He says it very clearly, but we'll get to that. So from Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality... And all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience." Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, this is God's word. You'll say with me, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. So as I said, we've come to a, a pretty big section here uh, in chapter 5. Um, let me just say right out of the gate, give you a warning. The gospel culture of chapters 4, 5, and 6 is not possible without the gospel teaching or the gospel doctrine or the gospel foundation of chapters 1, 2, and 3. Paul's point is this. If the teaching, if the doctrine, if the truths of the doctrine come home to your heart, enlivening you, you'll be a person who wants to obey, but only from the foundation of chapters 1 to 3. So as he goes into 4, 5, and 6 and gives some very specific ways of obeying, uh, you got to base that on, you got to remember 1, 2, and 3. Now, if you read this section, particularly what I just read, and you think, 
There's no way I can begin to move toward that type of life, that type of mindset. You're right. That's what you're supposed to think. If we read these words on our own, outside of the context of the whole book, we're going to be tempted to put our own efforts toward keeping these what we call imperatives. You know the difference between an indicative statement and an imperative statement? English teachers, students, uh, if you love English, you're welcome. If you hate English, I'm sorry. But indicatives are statements of fact, right? Imperatives are statements of, uh, well, exhortation, or this is what you need to do. Indicatives are, this is the way things are. And so Paul moves on to these imperatives, and as you read these, if you read them, if you open up to Ephesians 4 and you start reading outside of, not, or not having read 1, 2, and 3, to the degree we experience some level of success, we can become self-righteous and condemn others who don't measure up to our standards, and we'll keep hidden the areas where we don't develop success, of course. Outside of faith in Jesus Christ, you and I will not be able to take these words seriously, all or any of Paul's words. Now, if you have a Bible and you look back at uh, chapter 4, verse 1, you'll see he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk. There's the word walk. Okay, we find the word walk throughout the passage I just read as well. You see the word throughout the Bible, actually. The Hebrews used it as a metaphor for life. And so in the reading of the law, a passage Tony read earlier from Isaiah, it says, you'll hear the teacher's voice and you'll hear it from behind you and say, there's the way, walk in it. Okay, we're all walking, we're all going somewhere, we're all headed in a direction. So the question as you begin or as we begin is, where are you headed? How, if we could pan out and look at the big picture of your life, where are you walking? How would you describe your walking? And no matter where you find yourself this morning, if you're here and you're a Christian, or if you're here and you're not sure, you're investigating Christianity, let me read these words from verse 14 again. Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. That is the kind of hear that refrain or hear that echo as we go through these verses. Now, I want to set the tone with verses 1 to 2. All of this passage, all these commands Paul gives us are set in the frame of imitating God. He says, be imitators, therefore, of God as beloved children. And so if it's God's love that defines you, that makes you who you are, then it becomes a powerful motivator toward how you behave. That's Paul's argument. Many times you find that children imitate their parents. Sometimes they imitate them for the good. Sometimes they imitate them for the bad, right? And we will say things like, well, you, you, you're acting just like your dad right now. Or you're acting just like your mom right now, right? They learn behaviors, children do, and practices from watching their parents. And so Paul is setting out to describe the person who walks in God's way as a result of watching God work, okay? So look at the outline. There's four ways of, uh, if you will, of walking that are described in this passage. I know it's a long passage, and I know you're thinking, wow, four points. I've been coming to this church for 13 years. Jonathan's never preached a sermon with four points. That's Drew's department. Well, you're right. So pray for me, uh, and hopefully pray for yourselves uh, that we can all get through this together. But I do think it kind of works itself out in these four ways. First, walking in love, walking in light, walking in wisdom, walking in joy, okay? And I know everybody is dying to get to the wild game lunch, so 
we're going to get moving here. Okay, first, walking in love. He says, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The same word for Jesus' self-giving love in verse 2 is the word that Paul uses to describe the heathen in chapter 4, verse 19. If you don't have that verse in front of you, I'll read it. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality. It's the same word. So either you're giving yourself up to sensuality or service. One is self-centered, the other is self-giving. Paul is contrasting two ways of walking, two ways of doing life. And beginning in verse 3, he contrasts walking in love with walking in lust. He says to covet, to overwant, is, well, opposed to the way of walking in love. Sexual immorality, the word is porneia, from which we get the word pornography. It is this giving your body away to whomever, but also desiring someone's body that doesn't belong to you, coveting. And in verse 4, he says, the antidote for coveting, the antidote for living this way is thanksgiving. Look there again, verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. He, he says, thanksgiving is the antidote. All of God's gifts, including sex and sexuality, are subjects for gratitude, not joking. And I gotta tell you, having sat through these verses this week, I had a couple of conversations with uh, some different people about the effect that these kind of uh, marinating in these verses all week was having on me. And, and I, some of it was hard because I, oh, we so uh, value grace here, right? And we're, we're so protective of trying to not become moralistic or legalistic. But I think sometimes we can head over on the other side of the cliff. Paul is very, very concerned about very specific behaviors, and he's, again, that's why I said what I said at the beginning, he's basing all this on if one, two, and three, chapters one, two, and three are true, then I, therefore, verse four, or chapter four, verse one, urge you to live in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've received. These are very specific ways of applying the manner in which we are called to be walking. And so let's take the text seriously. Repent where we need to. If you're participating in crude joking, Stop. Not that old mad uh, libs, or not mad libs, but uh, that old Bob Newhart thing where, you know, he goes, the lady goes to visit the psychiatrist and she says, well, I'm having this dream and I'm trapped and I'm being buried alive. And he says, well, stop it. That's not good counseling, okay? The, if you're participating in these things, stop because you've been given a calling that is worthy of, of something better. That is Paul's point. See, our culture has given the glory and joy of sex over to the pornographic industry, just as an example of one of the things Paul addresses here. And I got news for you and them. It doesn't belong to them. God is the creator of all things. The Bible says from him, through him, and to him is everything. So rather than acting like they belong to us, Taking for ourselves coveting, Paul says, we are to give thanks for them, and they become a means to serve others. Apply it to marriage very simply. Husbands give themselves up for their wives. 
wives give themselves up for their husbands. More on that next week. See, Paul is contrasting the values of the Greco-Roman world. In the Greco-Roman world, you give away your body to whomever you want, and you keep as much money as you can for yourself. In other words, you are generous with sex and stingy with your money. And he says the Christian view is completely the opposite. It's give away your money liberally and keep your body for your spouse only. Be generous with money and stingy with sex. And Christianity is unlike any other religion because it demands exclusive sexual integrity within the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman, and it demands justice. Some translations of verse 5 say, you can be sure everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is greedy, that is, covetous. God's law covers external behavior. In this case, Paul's going after sexual promiscuity, but it also covers internal motives because I can covet something That is, I want it so much that I'll do anything to get it, but stop short of acting. And the Bible says that internal motivation in your heart at that moment, that's sin as well. See, a person might be sexually moral and chaste, but full of greed for money or power. Unjust, in other words. On the other hand, another person might love justice and caring for the poor, but be sexually promiscuous. Both types of people are failing to uphold the law of God. And, Paul says, outside of Jesus, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so let me be as stark as the text is and say to us, these types of things have no place in the church. The NIV says, there must not be a hint of these things among you. They're out of place. They don't make sense in the Christian community. They are the opposite of walking in love. Because God doesn't behave this way, and neither should we. I'm really trying to not be a grumpy old man scolding you, okay? I really am. So pray for me, because I don't want to come across that way, but I also just want to let the text speak for itself. He's very clear. He's very stark, right? So he says, walk in love, and then he goes on to talk about walking in light. And my question for you is this. Do you tend to view the darkness in the world as out there, or are you suspicious of the darkness that's in your own heart? Christianity is very honest about this reality. In verse 7, Paul says, because of sin, the wrath of God is coming. Well, who does it come to? The disobedient and rebellious. He says, don't partner with them. Expose them. Don't take part in those activities because they thrive in darkness and shun the light. So as Paul has taken great pains to show us in the first half of the letter, and if you've not been here for the, the last few months, let's say maybe you're visiting for the first time or here, you know, maybe it's second, third week, something like that, and you've not been here for uh, much of the book of Ephesians. Or maybe you're new to the Bible or new to Christianity. Let me explain. When a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ, they are united to him, and the Bible says that they are transferred by the power of God from darkness to light, from one kingdom, one realm, one state to another. Now, there's still darkness in there, but... The scriptures describe a process that we call sanctification, and it is the slow, gradual, did I mention slow, process of dispelling that darkness by the light of Jesus in the gospel. It's a long, long process. But lest we read this and think, I'm light. Yeah, I'm a Christian, I'm light, I'm good, I'm right and true, as opposed to those awful people out there living in 
darkness. You know, the people doing despicable things. You know, people like the Nazis or pedophiles or criminals. Read verse 8 very slowly. Look at verse 8. What does it say? Paul says, At one time, you were darkness, but now you are light. Is that what it says? I left something out. He says, At one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. And listen, without that prepositional phrase, you and I are doomed to self-righteous, moralistic finger-wagging. We are doomed to hiding, faking, and covering up for our failures. In other words, without that phrase, we aren't really in the light because it is only in the Lord that you are light. The gospel tells us only in Jesus, only tied to him, united to him, are we made light, beauty, truth, and goodness. If you go back to 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, it's in the assurance of pardon. Okay, uh, printed for you in your worship folder. Verse 7 says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. You'll notice John describes a Christian as someone who walks in the light. And what's the effect? What are the results? He says, fellowship with one another. Christians, as children of light, enjoy a fellowship with one another, a relational fullness, a transparency, and a vulnerability because they live exposed. And this is a critical part of a gospel culture. If in the Lord, Ray Ortland talked about this a few weeks back, if, if in the Lord we are light, then hiding and faking, keeping ourselves and others in the dark doesn't have a place among us. Our lives are lived in the open because it's the blood of Jesus that cleanses us. We're all on a level playing field. And what happens is, as our lives are lived in the open, our attempts at self-salvation and self-justification are laid bare. They're exposed. Our confession uh, that the uh, Presbyterian Church in America adopts as a summary doctrine of uh, the teachings of the Bible, the Westminster Confession in chapter 15 says, As there is no sin so small, but it deserves damnation, so is no sin so great that it can bring damnation upon those who truly repent. That's good news. And if that is true, then I'm free to live in the light the light of Jesus is revealing mercy. Because as John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, said, great sinners need a great Savior. But great sinners also need fellow great sinners to confess to and find fellowship with and be light to each other so that they can, as they're walking exposed, move away from hiding and faking toward transparency and vulnerability and fullness, light. And so we are to walk in the light. But thirdly, not only walk in the light, walking in love, walking in light, walking in wisdom. In verses 15 to 17, Paul says we are to walk in wisdom. We are to redeem the time. Look in verse 15. I'll read it again. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. 
He, when he says redeeming the time or making the best use of the time, the Greek word is a word for the marketplace or it's an economic word. And it literally means to make a killing in the market of time. Do you know what the euphemism killing time means? Okay, it's not something that people who've been successful in business have done much time doing, spent much time doing. I got a little tongue twisted there, sorry. What is a euphemism for killing time? Wasting time. It's not wasting time, it's making the most of the time. Every opportunity. Moses says in Psalm 90 verse 12, teach us to number our days so that we may get a heart of wisdom. He links this attentive life, this paying attention with wisdom. Paul says, look carefully, pay attention, walk circumspectly, utterly aware of your surroundings. These are the types of words that describe a person walking in wisdom. Now, we've said this before, but living the Christian life isn't just a matter of knowing right and wrong, but it's about knowing how to apply right and wrong. In situations where things aren't so clear, there are many gray areas of life, many things that the Bible doesn't explicitly speak to, right? For example, what kind of job do I get? Who do I marry? At what age? What size house do I live in? It doesn't speak about a lot of things, the Bible, in black and white terms. It relies on us practicing wisdom. And Paul says, as you are walking in wisdom, because the days are evil, you begin to understand what the will of the Lord is. When we have big life decisions before us. We desperately want to know what the will of the Lord is. Well, at least I do. Maybe you don't necessarily. But when, when you've got a big decision to make, you're desperately wanting to know, God, what am I supposed to do? Or if we're facing a season of struggle or a difficult circumstance, it can be painful and damaging to our faith to actually see it as God's will. Surely this isn't your will. And to, to uh, give you a statement that Jack Miller made, he was a pastor in our denomination uh, for many years. He said, I think that a great hindrance in discovering and following God's will is our difficulty in believing that his will is good and good for me. We need to learn to love God's will if we are to be mature believers, but we can hardly love his will if inside ourselves we have not been persuaded that his will is for our good and is itself a good will. I'm always struck uh, by that. Do you believe that the will of God is good, not generically, but good for you? Generally speaking, as Paul tells us, uh, in his letter to the church at Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 5, we know what the Lord's will is for every single Christian. He says, rejoice always, pray all the time, and give thanks in every circumstance. If the church collectively would commit to just those three practices, I think we'd find ourselves walking in wisdom. I think we'd be making the most of every opportunity. I think we wouldn't be participating in things like filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking, we'd be full of thanksgiving. Wisdom, according to the Bible, begins with fearing the Lord. And only as we walk in wisdom will we be trusting that his will is the best will. As we look to Jesus, who is called wisdom and righteousness and redemption, it begins with him. So walking in love 
walking in light, walking in wisdom, walking in joy. Lastly, we're almost there. Some of you are thinking, wow, it's really flown. So in the last little section here, look at verse 18. Paul says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks, there it is again, always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, incidentally, can you imagine being a person who filtered everything in life through the lens of thanksgiving? You were saying throughout the day, day in and day out, oh, Father, thank you for that. For me, it would be, as some of you know, getting caught in uh, traffic, people driving slow or not according to my standards. Oh, Father, thank you for the opportunity to practice patience. Are you kidding me? I never say that. I never say that. I say, why are all these people continuing to move here? And why is the governor continue to allow the border to be open? We need to have a closed border. Like a wall or something. Like our own CBP, Customs and Border Patrol. Florida Customs and Border Patrol. I'm just letting you in on the depths of my depravity in that situation. <laughs> Rather than gratitude, okay? Again, I am so convicted. I find myself repenting so much reading these verses again and again and again because Paul is taking great pains to say a Christian is a thankful person. He, he goes on to say, he, he contrasts being filled with the Spirit. We got to get through this part. Sorry, I got a little off track there. He says, being filled with the Spirit is, is the opposite of being drunk. Because he wants us to see that being filled with the Spirit results in the same thing as being drunk. Only anchored in reality, not fiction. Now, if you remember the scene at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit fell, what did the people who were watching the disciples think? They must be drunk. And Peter says, no, they can't. They're, of course they're not drunk. It's 9 o'clock in the morning, right? Now, why? There must have been some indication. Well, let's just imagine for a moment. They were having a great time. They were really enjoying themselves. Alcohol, as you probably know, is a depressant. So a, a drunk person sees less of reality resulting in them being more courageous and happy. You've heard the term, drown your sorrows. It means alcohol can dull our sense of struggles we are facing or problems we're having, and maybe we end up facing them with more courage or happiness, but only temporarily. It doesn't last, right? I mean, how fit for facing your struggles are you when you're hungover? Not very much. But here's the thing, the spirit does exactly the opposite. Do y'all hear that? Is that me with this thing? I hear some reverb or something. Sorry about that. The Spirit does the opposite. Being filled with the Spirit produces courage and joy by increasing your sense of reality. So while alcohol causes your motor skills and your reaction time and your senses to be deadened, okay, thinking that you can do, well, stupid things when in reality you can't, to be filled with the Spirit means you become 
alive. The spirit causes your motor skills and reaction time and senses to awaken. To be filled with the spirit is to be dominated by him, by what he thinks and does. And Paul says, being under the influence of wine causes a lack of self-control. But being under the influence of the spirit makes us controlled. It makes us thoughtful. It makes us with it. Have you ever had a job review where one of the things they graded was your with itness? No, seriously, that's a thing. Uh, when I was uh, doing some teaching and would have, uh, you know, a principal or, or whoever, a supervisor would come in to uh, monitor me, one of the things that you'd get back on the sheet would be like, with itness. What's it mean to be with it? Do you want your heart surgeon or your dentist to not be with it? Of course not, right? So being under the influence of the Spirit makes us controlled and thoughtful and with it, walking in real joy, walking in lasting joy, walking in deep joy, not a temporary or shallow joy from something like wine. That's Paul's point. The Spirit delivers Jesus' joy to your heart. He makes the person and work of Jesus more real. Dane Ortland says it this way, the Spirit's role is to turn our postcard apprehension of Christ's great heart of affection for us into an experience of sitting on the beach in a relaxed chair, drink in hand, enjoying the actual experience. To be filled with the Spirit is to experience the beach, not receive a postcard about how beautiful the beach was for someone else's experience. But not only that, Let's keep going. The joy seeps out. What does Paul say? Be filled with the Spirit. Verse 19. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Our speech is filled with praise and singing to one another because our hearts are full. Our posture is gratitude. Being filled with the Spirit means we interpret all of life, as I said, through a grid of thanksgiving. There's always something for which to give thanks. Now, what really strikes me here, though, is that being filled with the Spirit, walking in joy, means a song in your heart. And for somebody who likes to think, you know, I like the song we sang earlier because it says, think what spirit dwells within thee. Think what Father smiles or not. I really like that part. But the singing part. My friend, my friend Patrick walks through the office during the week, and I know when he's here because I hear singing. Sometimes very random singing. I have no idea what it means or is referring to. Or I know he's in here practicing because from my office with the door shut, I can hear his voice echoing through here. And he's singing. Just sing it away. Is there a song in your heart? There's music, Paul says, not just thoughts, because the gospel produces wonderful music. As the old hymn says, the gospel tunes your heart to sing of his grace. And I want to be a person. Don't you want to be a person who is filled with the Spirit and addressing each other in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs? Now, I know that sounds cheesy, like we're walking around going, praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation, brother. I, I just said good morning, man. Right? I mean, that would be weird. And I don't think Paul's talking about something weird. But the problem is, you and I sometimes, in an effort to, you know, surely he's not saying that, will minimize some of the descriptors or the imperatives in passages like this because we don't, well, we don't want to be seen as weird or odd or, you know, super spiritual. 
I don't think he's talking about a super spiritual person. I think he's talking about a spiritual person. Just the baseline. Be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. If that's going on in here, it's going to come out. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you hear the voice of the Spirit this morning? He would say to you, wherever you are, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Let's pray. Jesus, please awaken us by the power of your Spirit. Fill us, we pray. That is, that is our, our cry, to be filled. And so we pray, fill us. Awaken us from our, our deadness from where our motor skills and where our senses have, have, have been lessened by the cares of the world or the joys of fleeting things, like some of the things even here, filthiness and crude joking and sexual immorality and some of the things that we often find ourselves drawn to. Awaken us that we might arise from the dead and you promise to shine the light of your presence and glory and grace on us. And so tune our hearts to sing your grace as we sing of you now. Change us, we pray, with ever-increasing glory. One little step today into the image of our Lord Jesus, that we might imitate you as your beloved children, as the passage commands us here. Uh, and would you do it uh, awakening us and humbling us, uh, that we would be ever more living in reliance on you. We pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. So receive these words. Uh, this, is, uh, this is the way we end our service each week because we don't want you to go thinking anything you've been called to is to be done in your power, but to be done under the authority and in the power of these words of this benediction, okay? So as you go receive these words, grab hold of them tight uh, and live out of them as you go to walk in love, walk in light, Walk in wisdom and walk in joy. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.